Hi, I'm Matt Bird. I'm James Kennedy. And this is the Secrets of Story podcast. Okay. Welcome back, James. Hey, um, your wife has a podcast now. She does. It's very exciting. We are now back to being a two-podcast family. She had a podcast about 10 years ago, and then back in the very early days of podcasts, and then she went at laps. But now she's back with a new podcast with her sister. It's called Fuse 8 and Kate. And they, uh, they, they look at uh, the classic children's books and they decide whether or not they truly are canonical. They've done six of them. I've heard four of them. But you've only heard two. <laughs> and you're her husband. I'm going to get caught up. I, 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 I have no excuse. How many of your how many episodes of this podcast she's does she listened, listen to? She's listened to every episode of this podcast. <sighs> I know. So, but, so, you know, she does a podcast with her sister, and there's a certain kind of, like, intimacy or kind of understanding, you know, when you're doing something with your sister. And, you know, I like to think of myself, Matt, as a brother you never had. Yes. No, that's not the case. That's not the case at all. But it's nice that you, uh, that you like to think of us in that way. Brothers from another mother. You just brushed me off there. I, I tried to establish some kind of, like, intimacy or, or some kind of, like, fraternity and... Literally fraternity. I would say... Do you have a brother, actually? I do. I have a oh, brother. Well, We're very well, close. Oh, is that, is that is it kind of like a loyalty to him that you brushed me off the plate there? Sure, let's say that. <laughs> you weren't thinking of him at all. <laughs> okay. Yeah. No. We're friends, James. I would say brothers. Brothers is, brothers is going pretty far. That's going pretty far. Yeah. Okay. So, um, I, I was coming to your, um, your, your house today, and I... See, you live, you live in a new house. Uh, you weren't living in this house before. I do. When we started this podcast, I was renting a house, and now we are homeowners. We have bought a house. We're very excited. And you have a red door, yes. which is very significant for those of us who are really into Twin Peaks The Return. Yes. Uh, um, um, Dougie, um, who is the character, that Kyle MacLachlan's character, uh, uh, Dale Cooper, he's been in the Black Lodge for 25 years, and he gets zapped out, and he takes the body of this sad sack insurance salesman named Dougie, and he's completely zapped out of his mind, and all he can do is say the last two words of what anybody else says to him, and Naomi Watts is his wife, and he's just kind of like sleepwalking through this life as this guy in Las Vegas, but the only way he knows what, what home he's in is that he knows it's a home with a red door. And so he can, every time I see a house like yours with a red door, I feel like I'm going to Dougie's house. So I, somebody complimented my red door. Like, my dad complimented my red door, and my mom said, oh, you're supposed to paint your door red once you've paid off your mortgage. And oh, really? I said, I never heard that, but it felt like it felt like my mom was undercutting me a little bit. Like, you know, like, oh, yeah, you don't have a right to have a red door. You're going to have a mortgage until you're 71. Oh, do you think that she made that up just for the moment? <laughs> I wouldn't put it past her. Is that the kind of family that you're in? Does your mom, like, constantly undercut you like that? We undercut. Well, there's a lot of undercutting in my family. Is and, that why uh, you didn't acknowledge your own brother a moment ago? Yeah. It's, uh, there's, my family was all about the undercutting um, growing up. But uh, this, is, this is something for the last episode or two episodes ago, the contentious dialogue. No, well, my brother commented on that in our podcast. Oh, on the page. I remember that. Give some context for that. My, uh, we talked about, I had talked about in that podcast, how like, oh, all dialogue is contentious and all dialogue is competitive. And James had said, no, 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 that's not true. Well, uh, okay. But broadly, yeah. <laughs> you, he says combating me and pushing back on what I'm, uh, what I'm saying. And my brother showed up in the comments to go, like, that's just because of our household. That's just because when we grew up, we grew up in a very combative household, and nobody listened to each other, and everybody interrupted each other. 
And that's why you think that all dialogue is about not listening and interrupting and combating and, and fighting for advantage because that was just the household you grew up in. But that's not what life is actually like. All right. <laughs> what are we talking about today, James? Well, you know, Matt, you are a guru. Yes. Um, you, you've, you've staked your flag on that. And there's a lot of other people who uh, purport to be gurus or are gurus. Mm-hmm. And um, one person who I think has particular authority he doesn't identify himself as a guru, but he's a writer, uh, is Dan Harmon. Yes. Um, and for those of you who don't know who he is, he's the guy, uh, the showrunner and creator behind Community, um, the NBC sitcom um, that is beloved by uh, comedy nerds. It was, didn't really have great ratings, but who cares? It was no. a landmark. It lasted um, five Yeah, yeah, it lasted seasons, a long time. Five like, broadcast pe- seasons is a lot. The people who loved it loved it, and I count myself as one of them 100%. I do as well. Um, and, and also Rick and Morty, which I love and you don't care for, right. um, but I think Rick and Morty is like this generation's set checkers guide to the galaxy. When Dan Harmon talks, I listen. Um, uh-huh. And he also had this thing called, and this is more germane to what we're about to talk about, this thing called Channel 101 back in the early 2000s. This is even before YouTube. He and some friends in L.A., they realized they had a lot of friends in L.A. who were out-of-work actors or they, or people who knew how to handle cameras or knew how to write, but they weren't getting any work. So what they did is they made this monthly kind of film festival, which still goes on to this day, in which like people would make a five-minute pilot for some show, and then they would show it at this monthly meeting, and people would come, and they'd vote which one, which shows get to be continued to the next episode, which ones get canceled. And so if they voted down, they get canceled. If, if they get voted up, they, they go on to the next episode. And so a lot of great stuff came out of, like, the Lonely Island people came out of the scene, the Yacht Rock people came out of the scene, um, uh, Rick and Morty people came out of the scene. So because of that, and, and Dan Harmon made his own videos for this, because of this, Dan Harmon made dozens and dozens and dozens of videos very cheap and very quickly in which he had to tell a story mm-hmm. very quickly. And he also had to kind of watch a lot, like hundreds probably, of videos of people who were trying to make something very cheaply and quickly. And so when watching this for a while, I, he got idea of like what makes for a good story. And he had been kind of marinating these ideas of Joseph Campbell for a while. And he came up with this idea of... Um, this Dan Harmon's story circle. Um, and I think that's what I want to talk about today and kind of compare it to your um, I, the kind of ideas of story and secrets of story and see how they complement each other and how they diverge. Um, and, and I think that would be interesting. Kind of yeah. like a, a clash of the titans of gurus. Yeah, well, one thing I did in the early days of the blog, and so I encourage you all right now to uh, go to the webpage, go to secretsofstory.com. Uh, go to the entry for this podcast and find, uh, I'm going to go ahead and link to something I did in the early days of the bong back before I discovered uh, Dan Harmon or back before I discovered Film Crit Hulk, another person who you suggested has his own story structure chart. I went ahead and I took all the people who had story structure charts and I created a compendium of them where I laid them all on top of each other, guru charts. And I went ahead and in honor of today's Podcast. I went ahead and added Dan Harmon and Film Crit Hulk to that list. And so I'm going to have the expanded, newly expanded list. So I invite you all to go there right now, check out this chart, agree with it, disagree with it, and possibly follow along as we discuss some of the stuff today. Now, Matt, I kind of want to kind of like humanize this and kind of bring it out, like, because there, there are things to talk about that, that are different b- between this, that, and the other. But like, basically, I think what we have to make a decision here of like, what do we do? Are we talking about in this podcast what is the most accurate 
way to analyze things that already exist? Or are we saying, what is the mindset you have to put yourself in order to create? Even if it's like a, a, a noble lie, you know, even if it's not accurate. Like, who, who, are we, who are we doing this for? Are we doing this for people who want to have a complete analysis of what exists? Or do we want to make something that, um, that helps people create things? Or, or do you think the two things are more congruent than I do? I think, no, I think that it's, they're incongruent, that it's, it's tricky. Going all the way back to Aristotle, I, at one point early on in the blog, I was talking about Aristotle, and we were debating whether or not Aristotle was saying this is the way you should write, or whether or not he was just analyzing, like, oh, these are certain tendencies in the plays of ancient Greece, or this is the way, was he being proscriptive or descriptive? And someone's saying, like, oh, he was just being descriptive. I'm like, no, if you read him, he's clearly being proscriptive. He's saying that yeah, see, these many, kind of plots are the worst. He's he saying that many worst. of these, many of these, you know. He's saying most of the people don't write this way. He's not mm-hmm. saying this is the way most of the plays are done. He's mm-hmm. saying this is the way most of the plays aren't done and should be done. Mm-hmm. And that has been, ever since Aristotle, in the, in the subsequent 2,500 years, you've had this constant push back and forth. Like, are, you know, is the purpose of studying story to proscribe or to describe? Is it to say, well, you know, this is what tends to happen in stories, that, which is more of the Joseph Campbell approach, or are you being prescriptive, which is more of the Blake Snyder approach, going like, there's only one way to do this, people, you gotta do it, you gotta knuckle down. And that was one of the more problems I had with Dan Harmon, is that, you know, so today, uh, James had me go ahead and read a ton of Dan Harmon stuff, which uh, I really liked, he's really great, and I like a lot of what he said. But, you know, he was definitely saying, you know, this is the way you should do it, and if you're not doing it this way, then you're probably doing something wrong. And one of the things, not to toot my own horn, but one of the things <laughs> I like about my, the way I write about it, that I don't see as much in other people, is that one of the, I think my big breakthrough was the moment I realized, like, oh, okay, I'm not describing all stories, or how all stories are, or how all stories should be. I'm talking specifically about stories about the solving of a large problem. Because you always had this problem, especially in the 90s when I came of age, where it's like, well, what about Quentin Tarantino? What about Pulp Fiction? You know, that has, you know, the world's craziest structure. And, of course, Pulp Fiction is not about the solving of a large problem. And once I realized, like, oh, what I'm talking about actually is the human nature, the steps we go through in our human nature when we're solving a large problem, and how that tends to play out in stories about the solving of a large problem. Instead of going, like, this is the structure of how all stories should be told. And I think Harmon falls into that trap a little bit uh, mm-hmm. when he talks about his. Uh, but now, I think, what, I think he's, descri- he's, he's describing solving a large problem with a little something left over. There, there's also some other things that are covered by him, just like the idea of like somebody g- going from a, a, like the, the conscious world of life and order down to the unconscious world of, of death and disorder and coming back out and being changed by it. That's not necessarily about the, the solving of a large problem, but it is a kind of story that is told. Um, and it, it, he might not be explicitly um, gesturing to that, but he de- there's definitely room in his scheme for that, whereas you kind of like cut that out at the very beginning. You're just saying it's all about solving of large problems. Right, that I'm saying that the only way you can really talk about structure is if, you're, if you limit yourself to that. Mm-hmm. But it's really fascinating. It's really good stuff. I'm going to link to this as well. And, um, I think, I think the, and I really like the idea of the subconscious that he's talking about. You know, like, like I said, I get into on my blog where Freud overlays into it, where Jung overlays into it. I get the feeling Harmon is more of a Jungian than a Freudian. Yeah. And, and I really like what he has to say about the subconscious. 
Yeah, and I think like where you are good on like like one by one small bore kind of things like do you do this, do you do that? He's um, he's stronger on a broader thematic level, and I think like keeping your method in mind and his method in mind, or actually not keeping them in mind when you're actually writing, don't keep anything in mind. That's uh, the tough thing. <laughs> uh, um, but just like but so Dan Harmon, um, after watching like a million videos and making a, a bunch of videos codified like the, his insights onto the Channel 101 website and he expanded on some of the points on his own Tumblr. And some people have added their own modifications in their own Tumblr posts or whatever. There's an article in Wired about Dan Harmon's story method. Um, people teach it in college courses, which is super satisfying because Harmon dropped out of Marquette after one semester. Oh, really? So this is a, this is a blow for, for, for the common man. Basically, he it's not so different from Joseph Campbell. He takes um, Joseph Campbell's kind of hero's journey but joseph campbell wasn't writing for screenplay people he was writing for anthropologists and so he, dan Harmon distills it for someone who wants to write stories and screenplays so instead of like ex- when he explains his things instead of explaining in terms of like folklore like joseph campbell does he explains it in terms of like die hard but and why is it good it has a certain elegant unity to it it's not a checklist of like 120 things like yours it's eight things but mm-hmm. th- but those things kind of complicate in interesting ways, and those eight things work in the large scale and in the small scale. So not only are they true for like the story as a whole, but also scene by scene, um, each scene goes through these eight steps. And also, I, I like about it that there's, there's these larger thematic effects that drop out of it quite naturally that you don't have to to push for or lay on. A, you know, um, after the fact, they kind of just from the way that it's. Um, his method is laid out from the beginning, those are already there. Yes. Um, and, and so uh, we'll get to that later. If, if you're at home and you're sitting at your desk and you're idly tapping your pencil against the wall, uh, go and draw a circle and then uh, draw a uh, horizontal line across the middle and then put a vertical line through the middle and then put like two more lines diagonally so they're eight evenly spaced spokes coming out of a wheel. And then you put these points around it. At the very top of the circle is step one, which is the character is in a zone of comfort. And then step two, but they want something. Step three is they enter an unfamiliar situation. Step four is they adapt to it. Uh, step five is at the very bottom of the circle. They get what they wanted. And then step six, they pay a heavy price for it, which is like going back up to the upper part of the circle. They, they return to their familiar situation. And then step eight, having changed. So those are big characters in a zone of comfort, but they want something, enter an unfamiliar situation, they adapt to it, they get what they wanted, pay a heavy price for it, return their familiar situation, having changed. And what he does is interesting because because it's all on a circle, then he points out that like there's complementary things from the other the opposite spoke of the circle. So he talks about how it's good to have an object from step four come back in step eight because they're on opposite ends of the circle, and it's good to have these competing mother figures show up at, at opposite ends of the circle. It's really fascinating. Like I said, I'll link to it on the blog. Um, for instance, in another sense, he says, okay, put everything on the top half of the circle is conscious, everything in the bottom half of the circle is unconscious. He says, well, our lives are like, we spend most of our times in the upper half of the circle. In the conscious mind, we're in a house. The house is well lit, people come over, they play games with us, we hang out. But every once in a while, you have to go down to the basement, the unconscious, to go and like you have to flick something on in the, 
in the, in the fuse box. So you have to get something out of the basement. The basement's full of weird, creepy stuff. And that's our unconscious, the things that we don't want to think about. It's kind of scary. But your sanity and your life depend upon an occasional trip down to the basement. And then you kind of go back up. And if you don't go down there once in a while, the whole house becomes unstable. And he does a similar thing with like order above the line and chaos below the line for society. And I think that although it seems like too the kind of you know kind of broad and theoretical at first i think it does lead to some good themes especially later on yes okay so to just make it simple step one when you two have a need three you go somewhere four search for it five find it six take it seven then return eight and change things you need go search find take return change and so, and that's the basic idea of of, of his thing. So, the, the, the much fewer steps than your thing. You're giving much more specific advice, but this is like broader thematic stuff that maybe, if you followed it, might maybe some of the things that that you cover in like a million tiny rules might get automatically taken care of by following these eight ones. Yeah, I like how he boils it down to eight words, which is certainly something I've never managed to do. <laughs> So um, his step one is like the character is in a zone of comfort, and, and here's where I start to depart. I always felt weird about like he, he starts step one is always like you. We establish a character and they're in a zone of comfort. Like I understand that for like I don't know Bilbo Baggins, he just wants to hang out in the Shire or whatever. But what what do you feel about like his idea of like characters always starting out in a zone of comfort? Yeah, I disagree with this one. I think that I think this is something that's always sort of a problem in stories that have are based on, you know, going back to like Sid Field, going back to this idea of the inciting incident, that I always feel like characters should be discontent and have long-standing problems when the story begins. That you should begin once the problem has already been pushed to the breaking point is when your story begins, not when a character is in a zone of comfort. Yeah, so I think it might be better described as like illegitimate okay or like a false comfort or like deadlocked and doesn't know it or enjoying what they're doing but not seeing the problematic aspect or doing what you're always doing and not seeing any reason to change. I mean, these, none of these are as catchy as character is in a zone of comfort, but I think they might be, the profusion of those might be more accurate. But what comfort does get right is that there is some fundamental stability at the beginning, yes, which will be upset even if that stability is illegitimate. But I think what we, I think when they say the character is in a zone of comfort, it makes it sound like he doesn't even have to go on a story. And so I think we something that like makes it clear that that comfort is illegitimate comfort. Right. I agree. I think that's something he's sort of missing that I think we both consider to be more important. Um, and so we go on to step two. So we it's established that they need they they want something. We demonstrate something is off balance in the universe, no matter how large or small that universe is. This is where the call to adventure comes in which I suppose they, they could refuse Yes, uh, in, in the Joseph Campbell sense. Any thoughts about this this part? This is good. I really like what he has to say about it. This certainly fits in with my structure. It fits in just fine. You know, on mine, I talk about how this is where the dangerous opportunity comes in. Why well, I, I talk, he says something in quite right. I talk about, I talk about the social humiliation and then... Oh yeah, he doesn't mention anything like that. Like you have this idea of like the, the, these increasing humiliations. Um, so what, what, what if we, let's make all this concrete, like if what's step one? Should we make up a story or should it be like some story that we know off the top of our heads like Star Wars or Silence of the Lambs or something that we haven't talked uh, about yet? Let's not talk about Star Wars or Silence of the Lambs. <laughs> We've talked about those so many times. Yeah, exactly. Should we do Raiders of the Lost Ark? Should we do... Sure, let's do that. Okay. So he's in his own comfort in the beginning. In a way, he's do, he's doing his job and he loves his job. 
the, the, in the first 15 minutes which he's going down into South America and he is uh, you know getting that idol he's he's supremely competent but then he is has a social humiliation his uh, yes. his rival steals his object from him Dr. Jones again we see there is nothing you can possess which I cannot take away uh-huh. and uh, he is betrayed by his assistant and then uh, loses the object to his rival and then has to go home to the university and explain he doesn't have it. Uh, but, also the, the social, the, but also a more human level social humiliation is when he's teaching and he's kind of hit off his stride by yeah. the students who are like, even though it's, it's you know, good for the ego, somebody <laughs> closing their eyes and says, I love you, you can see him going, but which makes him very relatable. Yes. The, I think the idea of the social humiliation, that the brilliant thing about it is that it makes a hero relatable on the terms of the audience. Because the audience isn't always undergoing um, physical or spiritual tests, but they're always going undergoing social yes. humiliations and tests. And that's what, you know, we all have flaws that we can't recognize and can't deal with. But we're not usually acutely aware of our flaws, but we're always acutely aware of social humiliations. Like, mm-hmm. you know, our day is, uh, is a list of the social humiliations we've suffered on the, in that day. Mm-hmm. <laughs> and, uh, and often, if we really thought about it, we would see how our, how our social humiliations reveal our flaws, but we don't see it that way. So then we figure out, okay, so what does Indiana Jones need? Like, yes. what, what, what does he realize is wrong in the universe for him? Does that does that come when he's talking to Brody and 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 they're giving him the the idea of going after the Ark, well, or is well, is it something else? Well, so his intimidating opportunity when he gets the idol, he does it by going to an altar mm-hmm. and switching out a religious idol for a bag of sand, mm-hmm. and he then thinks that this will be his way of succeeding in the world. Is he will replace altars with bags of sand? He'll be able to rob altars and and put bags of sand there. Replace and something that, holy with just his mere ingenuity. Yes. And that therefore he will he will survive. And in fact, this does not work. Uh, it the altar knows the difference between a bag of sand and a sacred object. He gets attacked with boulders and spears and gets away. But he's been delayed enough by these boulders and spears that he is then humiliated. So then, in the intimidating opportunity, the government shows up and they say, "Oh, we need you to find the Ark of the Covenant." And he instantly starts saying, like, oh, you know, I don't believe in Arks of the Covenant. I don't mm-hmm. believe in God. I don't believe in all these things. I'll be happy to recover your Ark. I'm sure it's not going to shoot out jets of fire. But uh, they don't, that's the, just silly. The great thing about this is that it's not all foregrounded that way. No. The scene isn't about, I think this is a good lesson. The scene isn't about him resisting the God part of it. You, you know, which would which be like if we were like writing this out as a chart, we'd say, oh, he does, really doesn't believe in this. And so we would have him pushing back more aggressively on that. But in fact, in the scene, as it is in the movie, it's a kind of just like a, you know, hellfire, you know, lightning, whatever. Yeah. It, you know, it, it, he underplays it. And so I think a lot of these things, when you're hitting these marks, maybe, of, of these, um, if, if you're trying, to, if, if you're thinking, I, I want to rearrange my script to, to fit one of these things. Maybe don't hit these marks so explicitly. No. He never says, God, bah, I don't believe in that. I'd like, I just once I'd like to show you someday when I believe in God. I tell you it will never come. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> that never happens. Uh, um, yeah. <laughs> so, um, so the intimidating opportunity is like, oh, here's a chance to get an object. He lost the last object that he got. And yes. uh, um, good. So that's his need. He wants something. He wants the Ark. And he also wants professional respect. He's already got professional respect from Brody. You know, if, if I think a bad writer would make like Brody be like, 
Indy, if you screw up one more time, <laughs> you're awful. out of the university. You know, and but I think the, the thing the the trouble with like checking things off of a list yes. is that it's a completely reasonable thing to write in a script if you're checking things off a list. Like, oh, I'll up the stakes even more and say that he's going to lose his job at the university if he doesn't get the arc. That's yeah. an excellent point. So, so how do we get around that? You have to trust yourself. You have to you have to do just enough. You have to do just enough on these things and not. You know, not double down, which is really hard to do. You know, a light touch. It's a great ex- Brody is a great example because it's hard to write a character like Brody who is not maximizing conflict, who is not you know putting the screws on your hero, mm-hmm. who is someone who just humanizes the hero. It's very hard. The real problem with relying on story gurus is that you tend to dehumanize your characters, mm. and a character like Brody is you're right does not is not the character who the structure is telling you to create it's not someone who is putting the screws to your hero it's not someone who is uh amplifying the steps of the structure it's someone who instead is you know humanizing the hero it's like oh if this hero didn't go on the story then they would still have a friend they can hang out with you right, know? right exactly <laughs> it's, uh, and we don't trust people who don't have friends yeah we don't and uh that's that's a huge problem so don't stories. have that principle at the beginning of the book that hum- humiliates your hero um, because he, you know, did the wrong thing at school, and then he's going to show them later on, like or, or like some kind of like, the, the the you don't you don't have to put the 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 pedal that hard down. Yeah. Um. So okay. So three, go. They enter an unfamiliar situation. Um. In Campbell's terms, this is crossing the threshold. Um. And like, so what what is if you wanted to come to listen to the story, like what is this? Is it? Like, as Dan Harmon was like, is this a killer shark? Is it outer space? Is it the mafia? Is it true love? Like now we're getting into what the movie is all about, and and uh, Indiana Jones goes and starts tracking down his contacts to find out how to get the the Ark of the Covenant. He starts yes. go, getting on the case. Um, so now we're entering the special world. So if above this we were in the world of life, now we're entering the world of death. If before this we're in the world of the conscious, now we're going to the unconscious, or from order to disorder. Um, we're we're en- we're entering the adventure world now. Mm-hmm. Yeah, I um, just realized like Raiders of the Lost Ark is really good at Dan Harmon's thing. Like I picked it because I have a list of movies, and I'll also link to this on the blog. I have a list of how fifty different movies line up according to my structure. And I picked it from that list, but man, it really fits Dan Harmon's really well in terms of he's all about, he's very Jungian, like I said, and he's all about, you know, like plunging, you know, you have to be plunged down into the world of your fears and you mm-hmm. have to be sent down into an actual basement. Yeah. Like, you know, like you should go down into the basement where your fears are. And boy, <laughs> that's, that's a great exactly. way of describing this movie. And we just it? intuitively picked this from this gigantic, like nightmarish grid that you put on the computer screen that we're both looking at. And you said Raiders. I was like, oh, yeah, yeah, fine. And, and, and that was, I, but I wonder if like your advice and Dana Harmon's advice isn't telling how to make great stories for all time, but it's just telling us how to make great 80s movies. I think that we're saying like we grew up watching Raiders of the Lost Ark and now we're and trying Star to Wars understand. And Star Wars and, and Silence of the Lambs. And, and those are the things Star, that keep coming Star back Wars, to. Star Wars, they get flushed down to the bottom of the trash compactor <laughs> yeah. where there's there's a giant snake down there too. Basically, <laughs> snakes in basements. Yeah. What you need to do if you want to write a great story is you need to have a basement with a snake in it. Done. <laughs> People, we've given you the secret. So um, that brings us to step four which is the search or adapt to this new world or in Joseph Campbell's terms the road of trials our protagonist has been like thrown into this new world he's, he's got to adapt to it somehow in Campbell as uh, Harmon points out it's a literal digestive tract breaking the hero down um, 
and and now it's like it's not all like the little things that we've been worrying about before. Things have become very simple. It's like eat or be eaten. It's, it's kind of like grappled with this, this one big simple problem. We're running around the Death Star. Are we gonna like get gunned down by a stormtrooper? Stormtrooper? Are we going to save the princess? And we're headed for the deepest level of the unconscious mind. Um, and so all the stuff that used to matter, like, oh, but I had this T-16 and I had to sell it to get in the Millennium Falcon. And, oh, what if I leave my uncle behind? How is the farm going to get on? And oh, all that stuff is like gone away and now things become very simple. It's about the goal. One thing that I have on my list that he does not have on his list is that there is an unexpected conflict after committing. And this is a great example in Rare's Lost Ark where Marion hates him. That's something that has mm-hmm. nothing to do with what's happened before. This is not part of the Nazi problem. Like, part of the, the idea of we need to stop the Nazis, mm-hmm. Marion hating him is not part of that problem. So this is a way that you've kind of gone beyond Harmon and said, look, it's all well and good to say, like, you know, we, we search, we adapt to this world, but what does that look like? What's the structure of that? And you right. say, the structure of that is that there's an unexpected complication. Yes. So, Great. I mean, I have a lot more steps than, than Harmon does. So yeah, yeah, yeah. I'm getting into, you know, he's... And, and please bring them up. I mean, yeah. the whole point is to, to bring these things out. Um, so then, this is the most important thing for me. So, um, step five, they find, they or they find what they wanted, the meeting with the goddess. This is the biggest thing I took from the story circle, because I always thought, like, oh, a story is about you have a goal at the beginning, and then by the end, you get that goal or you don't. And what he made it clear is that the hero should more or less get what they set out to get by the middle of the story, not the end. Or, or, or they like totally fail to get it, but everything has to change, has like a 90-degree like a turn at the middle. Um, Which I totally agree with. I think this is excellent point that Harmon makes, and I totally agree with that the hero should... You know, the hero thinks that the story is going to end at the midpoint. The hero thinks that they have gotten to the end of the story at the midpoint. And it's only when the midpoint ends in disaster that the hero realizes, oh, there's all this extra story that I didn't know about. And the hero is not going like, oh, you know, I here I am at the beginning of the story. The story is going to end in two hours when I get to the end of the story. And now I'm at the middle of the story, which is I know is going to be the middle. I think I think Harmon has a very good point here. They should get to their goal and achieve their goal and then realize, oh, my God, there's so much more going on here. Yeah, and so like Luke the, at the beginning is like, I gotta find this princess. He finds her at the middle, not the end, but at the middle, and then everything gets much, much worse. Uh, Harry sees his parents in the mirror of Erised, but things get much, much deeper after that. Um, it's a special pig pivot point. It's a big deal, and for Harmon says like here we experience a kind of weightlessness. Here's where the major revelations happen, and we are in a place of total vulnerability. This is where the twist is going to happen, and anything can happen here. But also, significantly, everything that happens after here is a choice, and it's harder than what we did up until now. Up to now, like almost kind of like a story gravity has been taking us down the circle to this point, and now it's a lot of hard choices that are going to get you out of here and claw your way back up. Yes. So obviously, Rare's Last Ark fits all this very well. He uh, finds he, the Ark of the Covenant. He finds the, the Ark of the middle. Covenant. That's what he was trying to get. You know, he is, he is, finds it and steals it from the Nazis. It's you know, he is right there. He has six, the movie is over. He is he has successfully stolen it from the Nazis for about two seconds, and then everything falls apart on him, and then he is put down in a basement with snakes, uh, where he is forced to face his subconscious and conscious fears all at the same time. And he's stuck with Marion, and he's stuck with these snakes. Yes. Now, I, one of the one of the ways I talk about is that uh, this movie is slightly atypical in its structure is that it has two lowest points because it's got 
First, you have, uh, going back to my structure I talk about, so conflict after committing is Marion hates him, and then the Nazis attack. Tries the easy way is he tries to steal it under the Nazis' noses. I talk about how then we have a lot of swashbuckling chases, and then you normally have one midpoint disaster in which all is lost. But in this movie, you have these two midpoint disasters. Oh, yeah, he thinks Marion is dead. First, as a result of the big chase in the Casbah, he thinks that Marion is dead, and he has all this classic post-midpoint disaster stuff. He has this whole scene where he gets drunk and he thinks all was lost and he feels awful. For about 15 seconds. (laughs) For about 15 seconds. But then, so that's going on and then he finds the Ark of the Covenant and gets sent to... So you have this divided lowest point in this movie, Mm -hmm. which is the one thing... This is a very, very classically structured movie, but the one way in which it's not classically structured is that first he loses Marion and then he gets her back in time for what is really the movie's lowest point when Mm -hmm. he is literally lowered down to the lowest point uh, in the basement full of snakes. But he's gotten her back at this point, whereas usually at the lowest point is when you lose... You know, when, mm-hmm. you know, usually Marion would seem to die at that point. Yeah. Uh, so Harmon says, uh, when he's, we were talking earlier about these symmetries across the circle, um, Harmon would say um, the first one at the top of the circle is like, you're being in the arms of the mother, however dysfunctional she might be. And then five, meaning the goddess, is like the new form of the mother, the unconscious version. And there's also a temptation to stay right here. Well, that doesn't exist in Raiders of the Lost Ark. He can't stay right there. But sometimes there is that kind of thing, like you have like a kind of like a false. Um, especially in like realist, more realistic movies, like you have a false um, kind of uh, um, solution to the problem that mm-hmm. they think that they can stay in, but they really can't. Yeah, that was an interesting thing that Harmon said that obviously is not true of every story. Is right. not true of Raiders of the Lost Ark. It's not true of a lot of stories. Uh, this but idea it's, it's, of, it's something interesting. Yeah, yeah, it's very inspiring. What Harmon does, he's he's not accurate about every story, but every time he opens his mouth, he inspires something in me. Yes, he. I think that it's a really interesting thing to say about a lot of stories in that there is this sort of you know this this temptation to stay down in the basement, to stay in the subconscious world, to stay in the dark world, and um, talks about how frequently people have sex at this point in the story yeah. um and uh Maybe which james, is, bond should, james bond should just stay with a lady blake, you know? blake snyder talks about that sex at 60 sex mm-hmm. on page 60 <laughs> indy very much does not have well, sex with her when he is in the basement full of snakes but it does happen in some stories which is again you know something that annoys me a little bit Harmon is that he is you know he says at the beginning like I'm not going to mention that there's an exception to every step in this rule believe me there are exceptions to every step in this rule which is good but then he spends some time he inevitably succumbs to the temptation to say like oh and this happens every time which of course you know why because he's a vivid and visceral writer he is you know and that's the only way if, if you're constantly hedging it then, then you'll never get any point across. Right. And so what, uh, basically what you have to do is read a lot of gurus, whether it's Harmon, whether it's Blake Snyder, which I don't really like, but whether it's Bird, you know, and, and, and then you kind of all have them, you kind of let them simmer and let them be furniture in your head. And then you make your own thing not thinking about any of them. That's the key. That's the hard part of writing. <laughs> you know, that's the last thing I say in my book is that... Uh, it should have been on every page. Though. Every page. Yeah, I say, you know, forget every rule. Forget everything I just said. This has to be something that you believe. You know, this can't be something that you think about. This has to be something that you just believe on a deeper level. And hopefully you will forget I said any of these things and these will just seem like your own ideas if they're going to be any use to you. And so, uh, what's the final line? I say, I say, if at all possible, forget what I said. And if not, forget that I said it. <laughs> you're like you're the Buddha that somebody has to kill on the road. Exactly. I I was gonna when I was trying to start a band in high school. I wanted it to be called the Buddhas in the Road. 
You definitely were in high school. <laughs> I was um, in high school. So actually, so he finds the Ark, and actually I think that was the, that was like the um, you get what you want thing. And then the stuff that we're talking about, like him and Marion being stuck together, that's a part of step six, which is pay the price. Yes. Meet your maker. Yes. Um, so he when he's with Sala and he finds the Ark, that's step five. Okay. Uh, um, and then they take the Ark out, and, and then like they, they send down the uh, Nazi flag, and they say... They're about to become a permanent addition to this archaeological find. Who knows? In a thousand years, even you may be worth something. <laughs> Son of a bitch. I think, but when she gets thrown down there, we're in the pay the price. Uh-huh. Uh, step six, meet your maker. And I always had a hard time understanding this one. Basically, the price of, the price of meeting the goddess, the goddess is that you get your ass kicked. Right. Um, the, in a love story, this is where they break up. I think uh, Dan Harmon was asked to do some rewrites on Doctor Strange. He was. And, and this is when, like, uh, somebody, the person who is bad tells you what is true. And the person who is bad has no reason. They, 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 they're saying things that you know they're true, but they're hard to take. Like, he's, I think the bad guy tells him, um, the, who, who's the woman from... Um, Tilda Swinton. Tilda Swinton. Tilda Swinton's been lying to you. All uh-huh. this time, and Doctor Strange realizes, "Oh my God, this is true," but he can't really quite process it yet. Right. But he, the, the universe is telling you difficult truths at this point. Yes. Uh, um. What, what is it for? Where does the Lost Ark? Like, well, he, he's getting his ass kicked by having to deal with snakes, um, and then getting out. But w- what else? I mean, is, is, does this really? This part of this doesn't really fit as well, like yeah. because at this point the movie just becomes wall to wall action. Mm-hmm. And there's not a lot of, like, really Dark Knight of the Soul stuff in yeah. Raiders of the Last Ark. You know, like I said, the Dark Knight of the Soul stuff actually happens early when he feels bad about the fact that he's gotten Marion killed. Mm-hmm. After you have the second lowest point, it's just slam-bang wall-to-wall action. Well, I mean, until the end, was it, was it kind of, like, very, like, don't look at it, Marion. That's thematically yes. resonant. Then, it, then suddenly a theme comes roaring back at the end. Yeah, so what are some other stories in which, like, Meet Your Maker is true? I guess, well, it's like, Ben Kenobi gets killed. Uh, yes. I want to go back into that. Like, Ripley realizes that Ash is evil. Yes. Uh, um, in Alien. So then the fugitive, he realizes that his friend is behind it all. Well, we, like, you've gotten everything you thought that you were, you thought you were going to solve everything, and yet, yet the rug is pulled out from under you. Yes. And I think this is what a, what a lot of writers don't have the heart to write. Yeah. This is the hardest thing to write. Or it's if you're a certain kind of person, you'd love to write this. <laughs> yeah. Uh, um, but for a lot of people in a lot of books, this is not what this is. step is skipped or minimized or not figured out, essentially. Yeah, I agree. I read a lot of books when I get my note service, and this is missing in one of those books. Um, but if once you get past that, you get like full control of your destiny like before in the in the first half of the circle you're like reacting to the forces of the universe according to Dan Harmon like you're adapting you're changing you're seeking now you've become the universe according to Dan Harmon you you have become the thing that makes things happen every decision that you make is very important you've become a living god Uh, this is very Campbellian so chap um step seven return Uh, go back to where it started bringing it home um, so you can't go back to the ordinary world and have the denizens of the deep like let you come back without any, without resisting you a little bit. Um, in the, in you, some you, ways, it, 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 these last two steps, I've, I've always had trouble with. 
you know, in, this is this step seven of his return <clears throat> is the one I most disagree with, and the one that is I talk feel like for a while. the most similar to other people. James said talk for a while so that he could drink some wine. He <laughs> he was lifting <laughs> his wine eagerly to his lips and said, "You talk for a while. I'm da- Daddy's got to go drinking." Um, so. <laughs> You know, I always feel like this is the way in which Harmon is most similar to to Campbell, and this was always the step I most disagreed with in Campbell. I also disagree with it in Harmon. I think Harmon does a better job than Campbell does in terms of trying to sell me on it, this idea of the return to the normal world. I always tend to feel like that's a problem with writers, is that writers try too much to return their hero to the normal world, that, again, it's the sort of inciting incident concept of writing, which I'm always very critical of, this idea of, I always cite Jaws as the exception that proves the rule, whereas Jaws, you know, there's the idea of like, oh, you know, we have a fine, happy town, then there's a shark, then we kill the shark, then we return to being a fine, happy town. But that's not actually the way most stories work. Most stories work where we have an unhappy town, we've got a bad situation, and then at the end, we do not return to the previous situation. We are moving on to an entirely different level. We're climbing a ladder. We are not uh, we are not in a circle. We are not circling back around to where we began. And I feel like that tends to be stronger stories, is stories where the hero does not return to the simpler world. I mean... Yeah, there's only... The only way to save this idea of the return is to kind of, like, have some special definition of it, which is so broad and psychologically vague and all-encompassing that it doesn't mean anything. Well, here's what I like, though, about what he says, is that what he says, and what you were just saying a little bit, is that is that the unconscious follows you back into the conscious world. Mm-hmm. Uh, you certainly can see this in something like the Babadook, which uh, he made me think of. You know, this idea that, like, you think you can return, but he talks a lot about Die Hard. He talks about, you know, but Hans Gruber is going to follow you back in, that whatever dark anti-version of yourself that you saw in this world that you're now trying to return from is going to follow you. And I like that a lot. I like his psychological take on it. I like his idea that all of the darkness you've encountered is your own internal darkness, your own internal subconscious. I like the idea that the fourth quarter is about trying to escape from the world of your dark unconscious and your dark unconscious following you back as you try to get away from it. But it doesn't exist in every case. Like Star Wars, they get out of the Death Star... And he just he flies a plane with zero conscience, you know, and well, blows it up. You, you know, there's nothing dark. Well, Star Wars him out of there. Star Wars is a great example of not returning. It's you know he does not attempt to go back to Tatooine yeah. at the end of Star Wars. You know he is going onward and upward at the end of Star Wars. He's going on to join the Rebel Alliance, also, which he always wanted why to do. It is so um, exhilarating because yes. nobody wants to return. They, they, that's why I have this problem with this return idea. And I wonder if they, this return idea is better for comedies or sitcoms in which the, 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 the status quo always has to be, in some sense, restored. Yes. Um, and, and, but not for kind of like certain kind of epics or tragedies or whatever. Like the, the, the return and um, the, the having changed things, like I always kind of like didn't know how to process them. The I mean, whole like left side of the circle I found difficult to to understand. Like I said, I think there's a lot of good stuff in there. Oh, yeah, yeah, yeah. Um, I think he has a lot of really good stuff to say. I think he's relying a little too much on Campbell. Um, And I think that, you know, there is, he talks about, you know, Jack and the Beanstalk. Jack and the Beanstalk is a great example of a story with a return in it. You know, how Mm -hmm. he just wants to get back down the Beanstalk. He does go back down the Beanstalk, but the giant, his subconscious follows him and chases him, and he now has to, you know, take out an axe and chop down the Beanstalk, and, you know, that where he can return with all the wonderful things he's gotten from the other world. You know, he has to kill the giant who follows him out of the other world and then return to his original world now with more good stuff. 
I think that, you know, that's a completely legitimate form of storytelling. And I think what he's saying is great for stories like Jack and the Beanstalk. I think, you know, but it's not as true of Star Wars. It's not, you know, Star Wars is not about a return. So speaking of cyclical, let's go back to step eight. They're the change. So they're the master of both worlds. And, they, and like something, like um, the protagonist is now world-altering ninja, says Harmon. They've been to the strange place. They've adapted to it. They've discovered true power. And now they're back to where they started. They're changed. And I always found this, he, I don't feel the way he described it very well, in terms of like, storytelling power of like how how can i make that true and until i realized this in step eight in change the character demonstrates that they've learned something in yes. the story yes in, in a, a specific thing they do do so luke demonstrates by using the force to blow up the death star that he learned something from ben kenobi earlier Yes. We're talking about Raiders of the Lost Ark. Indiana Jones demonstrates that he learned something by closing his eyes and not looking at the Ark when it opened up because yes. he learned that there was something holy here. Marion, don't look at it. Shut your eyes, Marion. Don't look at it no matter what happens. But you, it can't just be when he just says, having changed. I, I think it has to be more active. The hero demonstrates they've learned something by doing something specific and physical. I talk about on my blog uh, and in my book reversible behavior. How mm-hmm. there should be some, you know, some reversible behavior that you know the hero was not willing to do before. Like you know, we saw Luke trying to take off the visor before, and then later he chooses to close his eyes. So mm-hmm. this is reversible behavior. And um, you know, in I guess in both Raiders and in Star Wars, it's all about closing your eyes at the end. Mm-hmm. That uh, the hero has to has to. I guess there are very similar stories. The hero yeah. has to <laughs> learn to believe in God and close his eyes for the finale. Close his eyes signifies believing in God or in spirituality in both movies. Now, of course, we in, st- in step eight always corresponds to step four. There's something that happens before the midpoint, but after entering the world, the, the crazy world in which you de- you learn one thing there that comes in handy at the climax across the circle. Yes. And that's the force for Luke. Like, like Ben Kenobi talks about the force, but only starts teaching it to him on the Millennium Falcon. That's between 3 o'clock and 6 o'clock on, the, on, the, on, on that chart. Yes. Uh, um, and, and then you go right across that chart, and that's when you need it. You were talking about symmetries earlier. Yeah, that's the case. that is, and that is the really sort of mind-blowing stuff in Dan Harmon's story circle. He has a lot of interesting, you know, when I saw he was doing it on a circle, I'm like, oh, this is Campbell, this is returning, this is the stuff I don't like. But I feel like it sort of pays off with what Harmon does and when he talks about the symmetries between one end of the circle and the opposite end of the circle and at each step of the way. And he has a lot of interesting things to say about how, like, oh, you know, at this point you'll have a specific image that is an image at the midpoint, which is the inverse of an image that began the movie, mm-hmm. or an image that happens at the three-quarter point that's the inverse of an image you saw at the one-quarter point. And uh, I, I found it very convincing. I thought, you know, that's the sort of news you can use, I, I was thinking as I was reading it, like, oh, I, I could do that in my stories, and that could make my stories better. And that's why a writer cre- becoming a guru is more valuable than a guru, an analyst becoming a guru. Right. You know what I mean? Campbell. Like, they, 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 yeah, exactly. Like, like Harmon is like desperately wanted to write stuff. Right. So his nose and his antenna were alive for these kind of things, and he was drawing out these kind of things, um, and he was finding them, and he was adapting Campbell's anthropological stuff. Like, I, I, I weep for anybody who's a screenwriter who's given Hero of a Thousand Faces or whatever, it's like, this will help you be a screenwriter. It's a, a really great book, but 
it's not a manual. No. It's an anthropological text. I think that really you should give everybody uh, The Secrets of Story by Matt Byrne. And I think oh, that boy. at that point you would, you know, I think I would make more money that way uh-huh. if everybody read that book. And uh, that's all I care about. So, James, well, so our, first of all, let's go ahead and deal with this. Are we going to talk about the big problem with Rare's Lost Ark? Are we going to talk about the problem that if he had stayed home, then not only would... would <laughs> we're not going to talk about that. No, no, we're because a lot of the internet sites have taken care of this. All right. Like, we, we, we're going to talk about things that are new that we know. We're going to talk about nothing at all. Like, everybody knows that there's a problem with Raiders of the Lost Ark. Yes. Do you want to describe that problem? <laughs> it all, not all, this is, you know, it's always a problem when you have a story where it's like, if the hero had stayed home, nothing would have changed. Uh-huh. And that seems to be the case when you watch Raiders of the Lost Ark, where it's like, he completely fails to keep the Nazis from getting the Ark. Mm-hmm. The only reason the Nazis fail and die is because they open the Ark and God kills them. It's the mm-hmm. ultimate deus ex machina. Back uh-huh. in the days of deus ex machina, that was, they would have God be lowered from the sky in a yeah. basket. That was what the machina was. The machina was mm-hmm. deus ex machina, God out of the machine. The machinery was this thing they had on the Greek stage where they would lower the gods from the sky in a basket onto the stage mm-hmm. uh, and the gods would solve the problem instead of the hero solving the problem. And this is what Aristotle said not to have happened. Well, that's literally what happens in Rare's Lost Ark. God literally comes out of this guy in a basket and solves the problems that the hero doesn't solve. But then you realize, it's no, not the problem that. But it's the problem is so much worse in Rare's Lost Ark because the one change that Indy makes in the whole situation is that he encourages them to open it early instead of opening it in downtown Berlin. <laughs> and that was the one change Indy makes in the story no. is that he saves Nazi Germany. They would have opened it beforehand anyway. And number two, <laughs> it's not about World War II. It's about Indiana Jones. Yes. It's about Indiana Jones and how... And, and his the the we, we, it's not about world historical things although those make a great background it's about like does he believe or doesn't he and yes. that's what makes a great story that's if what you makes say a great story. oh gosh you'll love my story it's about the Tarkodians and whether or not they'll overcome the Zarponians the Tarkodians now are and then you talk for about a half hour but the Zarponians you see are and you talk for an hour um, and nobody cares. What we care about is Indiana Jones because he's us because we've all lost faith in the world and in God and in the supernatural and we desperately want it back um, and, the, and and he gets what we don't get to see which is a demonstration of the divine and then yes. we can kind of uh, feel that um, kind of vicariously through him. It's the same, it's the same thing through Star Wars like Oh, the Han Solo is like there is no great force, and it's like, and Luke's like, yes, there is, and then it's demonstrated to us there's something beyond the universe, and the same thing in in Close Encounters of the Third Kind. There, uh, there there's the Terry Carr is like, just you know, sit at home and hang out with your family. No, there's something bigger. I'm gonna make a mashed potato mountain, and then I'm gonna go there. Um, the these are these are all about individual journeys, and the, that's much more compelling than, like, gigantic world-building journeys. But it's a huge problem. It's a huge problem. When you sit back and think about Rares Less Ark and you realize that this is a movie about the guy who saved Nazi Germany from being destroyed by God. If he, <laughs> that's the thing. Like, if you think about it, like, I, I'll tell you this. When I went to see... Um, Rare's Lost Ark for the first time. It was, you know, 1982 or 1984, whatever yes. it came out. And I, I was living in... Uh, I, I, my family and I went down to downtown Detroit. I'm from Troy, Michigan, um, for 4th of July. Uh-huh. And we were going to go see the fireworks. Um, and 
but we had time to kill. It's like, let's go down to the Renaissance Center, this gigantic 70s tower in the middle of uh, downtown Detroit. Let's go see a movie. Randomly went to saw Raiders of the Lost Ark. There was a gigantic line. We had no idea why. We're sitting there in line, and then... How the, old were you? Um, I must have been like nine. Yeah. The, the movie let out, and people came running out, and this guy came running right at us, and he like looked right at my eyes and said, that was the best movie ever! And then he kept on running. And take that and, and, and weigh that on your scale against somebody in 2013 where an article says, I found a slight flaw in your movie. And I'm on the, on the side of the guy who ran out of that theater in 1980-something and yelled, that was the best movie ever, over that guy on the internet who is poison. Yeah, I know, I know. It's the sort of thing where you really should not think about it, because, you know, why would you want to ruin this wonderful movie? It doesn't uh, ruin it to about think it. about it. It's a, it's not about <laughs> the world, it's about Indiana Jones, what he believes, and what right. we believe. What, what do we feel that we're in touch with, and what are the possibilities of the universe that we're in? That's true. Are, are they simply, are we simply matter- that's under the influence of impersonal laws and any kind of thoughts we have are just epiphenomenon that are meaningless or are we charged with some kind of divine essence right no it's true that's that's the level the story works on and that's all that matters it's right so my story about seeing this movie i'm younger than you but i also saw in the theater when i was six my daughter is now six and i can't imagine taking my daughter to the theater to see this movie but i was fine with it i was totally even though i'm like now scared of snakes uh-huh. Maybe this has something to do with By that. By the way, but don't cut any of this out. This is as, good stuff. As don't an adult, as an adult, I became uh-huh. scared of snakes. Maybe this had something to do with it. I was not as a child. Well, I had no big problem with it. However, we go to see the movie in the theater. My parents had just returned home from a trip, and they had travelers' checks. So we go to see it in the theater, and my dad tries to pay with travelers' checks. And of course, at the time, movies were an all-catch business because they would they would lie about how much business the uh-huh. movie had done when they were sending their money to the studios. And so it was very important for them to have it be an all-cash business. So they wouldn't accept Tramworth checks, even mm-hmm. though there were all these ads on TV saying they're the same as cash. You can mm-hmm. use them any place you can use cash. And my dad made such a stink that they wouldn't let him use Tramworth checks that the, they called mall security to drag all four of us out of the building. <laughs> <laughs> so I was forcibly escorted from so Lennox didn't get Mall to see it. in Atlanta, Georgia and did not get to see the movie That's when, awesome. when I went to see it. So we began this podcast talking about how my family was had a little more conflict <laughs> than some other families. It's between you and me. And uh, my dad getting in a shouting match that resulted in uh, security expelling six-year-old me from the mall, and then we went back the next day with cash, and we were able to see the movie. I, I will never forget that night, because that was the night that um, we were at a restaurant in, in Detroit, and the owner of the restaurant came up to us and said, you look like a nice family. Come to my rooftop firewalk, firework watching party. We went onto a rooftop in downtown Detroit and watched the fireworks burst over our heads, and it was like they were coming right out. I felt that I was inside a firework. It was amazing. That's great. What was what, what, now, what was your... Re- Experience again. Over to I feel these are so different. Like, was, my family was dragged out of I the got mall. arrested. My family was taken up to a rooftop fireworks celebration. Okay, James. So I think we've we've once again we've talked way too long. Any closing thoughts about Dan Harmon? I think I think there's we've talked about the parts of it that I don't necessarily totally agree with, but I found his way of approaching it to be very liberating and interesting. I like that it makes things broadly thematic. Yes. Um, the, the, if, if there's a thing 
in Secrets of the Story, they get bogged down and it's like, well, here's 122 different points I have to make sure I'm a good little boy and I hit every <laughs> single one. It, whereas the, the broadly thematic way, it's just like, like, well, just think about this stuff while you're doing stuff and right. stuff will drop out. Now, uh, the, now, sometimes you have to get fine-tuned and you have to go the Matt Bird way. And right. sometimes, especially maybe when you're in the initial creative space, you have to like be more broad and thematic and you go the Dan Harmon way. I think this is all stuff that you need to have in your head, um, or you, unless you're a genius and you're David Lynch, you know, and you're just doing stuff purely intuitively. Yeah, I, I, I think th- th- there's a reason why this guy has made some of the most well-regarded comedy of the past 10, 15 years. Yeah, it's great, and it's very rare that you have someone who who is able to produce such great output as he does, and also speak about it so cociently as he does. Often. Yeah, because David Lynch himself. Often it's one or the other. David Lynch, yeah, is never gonna is never gonna have a blog post where he talks about his story structure. Well, he they'll ask him about stuff. It's like, well, what's Twin Peaks about? Well, it's about the the wind going through the trees <laughs> and the owl. And then that'll be about. Although he has that, that one idea of the, the eye of the duck, which I do think right. is true. We talked about that earlier podcast. Okay, so uh, I agree. I think, like I said, uh, I do. I do worry where uh, this is not the greatest radio in the world, and that I keep telling you you have to go on the blog and look at visuals. <laughs> but uh, but please do go look at the visuals on the blog and also read the posts that I'm going to link to. And I think that we've uh, gotten some good discussion out of uh, Dan Harmon's competing structure to mind Dan Harmon's story circle. Yes. Okay, James. So now we get to the final portion of our broadcast, which is uh, free story ideas. It is your turn to have a free story idea. No, I'm not going to do it because we've dropped so much knowledge here and I don't want to edit any of it out. And I think that we, um, what we should, you, you know what? I'm going to, I'm going to be a man. I'm going to go ahead and say, don't listen to me. I'm going to say, you know what? I'm going to step down. I'm not going to take the stage. I'm not going to blare out. Say, you you forgot to bring a story idea, didn't yeah, you, James? I forgot. James forgot to bring a story idea, everybody. Uh, so those of you who listen to this podcast hoping that you will have a free story idea because you yourself can't think of one are totally screwed this week. Are totally screwed for this episode because James did not bring a new story idea. You know what? Down and Out and Heaven and Hell was good enough for, for two. It was good. It was good. So, well, you're you're still on the hook next time. I'm not going to I'm not gonna jump your place in line. Are you going to have one next Fair time? Fair enough. Fair enough. Okay, so we're going to have to uh, cut this down, but uh, not as much because no free story idea this week. I always Do you like how I always refer to this episode as weeks? Like, oh, what we talked about last <laughs> week on this week's episode. Like, you just, started this in no, this what, is, like, October or yes, September The, the of first last episode year. aired in November of 2016. Oh, this is episode number six. It is currently August of 2017. you got to work hard to catch so, up to your wife in terms I, of speed. My wife is putting on a new episode oh, every other week. Every you just week, acknowledge me week. as your brother. You I can know. get these done more often. You ain't heavy. So, okay. I'm Member. This is James Kennedy. This was the sixth episode of the Secrets of Story podcast. Thanks for listening, everybody. Go and send no more. Thank you for listening to the Secrets of Story podcast. Please subscribe and rate us wherever you found us. Go to secretsofstory.com and click on the Secrets of Story podcast in the sidebar to find notes and join the discussion about this episode. Find out about James's novel, The Order of Oddfish, and more at jameskennedy.com. And hey, if you'd like a free audio copy of that book or my book, sign up for a free trial of Audible at our special landing page, www.audibletrial.com slash secretsofstory. We get a few bucks and you get a free book. We're on Twitter at Secrets of Story 1 and at I am James Kennedy. Our music is by Head and Kime. Our logo is by Jessica Friday. See you next time.